Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ to all the saints who are in Philippi with overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of his Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great God and Father, we do ask now that by your Spirit, you would help us to better understand these words from Paul, that you would encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us, and help us to grow in our maturity and likeness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Monday morning, I uh, came into the office and I got into what we like to call the zone for sermon prep. I had my coffee, I had my commentaries, my Bibles were out. I was getting excited about looking into the background of Philippians, but I was quickly removed from the zone when I received a call of distress from Courtney. She had been out running errands and our minivan started to have all sorts of problems. She said the check engine light was flashing, there were words and letters and codes that were like popping up that she had never seen. At one point, I think she said, I don't think I'll make it through the intersection. So I didn't get any sermon prep done. I uh, actually ran out. She was pretty close to the church, and we switched cars. And I went and I dropped it off at the nearest Honda service center. Rest of the day, I came back. I tried to focus in. But around 3.30 in the afternoon, I received one of those text message updates from the dealer. It was a picture of my spark plug, and it looked a little dirty. And then below it, it said, oil 
in the spark plugs. This means you have a piston ring failure. Engine must be removed. All six piston rings need to be replaced. Price tag $4,500. So then no sermon prep got done, <laughs> right? I immediately start scouring the internet. I, I need a second opinion on this. I couldn't believe it. So then I came across all-star Japanese engines and auto services. I gave them a call. It's about 5 o'clock. They're closing the door. And my new best friend, Robert, answers the phone. <laughs> Robert's been doing this since 1988. And he began to ask me all sorts of diagnostic questions that hadn't been asked before. Things like, have you been having to top your oil off on a regular basis? Or, you know, has, <laughs> has your car been smoking like a chimney fire out the front and the back? These are all things I'm saying no to, of course. And he said, I think they've misdiagnosed your van. Bring it in to me. So first thing, Tuesday morning, Chris Bennett and I go and pick up the van. I'm told at Honda that I will not make it. I'm going to be stranded on the side of the road. It's not safe to drive. It drove just fine. <laughs> I took it to Robert. I dropped it off, came back here, started working on the sermon. Tuesday afternoon, I get a phone call. Tuesday's my birthday, by the way. So Tuesday afternoon, I get a phone call. Robert says, Mr. Libby, your van's all done. I said, okay, what was wrong with the van? He said, we did a deep and thorough inspection. Removed all the spark plugs. They clearly needed to be replaced. We took cameras and looked into all the pistons. Everything looked fine. We changed your oil. It's holding oil just fine. Combustion, compression, all good. It was just the spark plugs. I said, well, Robert, what do I owe you? $500. He saved me four grand. Needless to say, I've never been so thankful for another person in my life. <laughs> I couldn't get my wallet out fast enough on my birthday to pay for spark plugs. I was so excited. And so what I did after that, I wrote him the biggest thank you note on his reviews that I could possibly do. And in the providence of God, the background to the letter of the Philippians is that it's a thank you note to the church at Philippi. While I was thankful for Robert, Paul was far more grateful to the church at Philippi because they had come alongside him in his ministry. What we read in those first 11 verses is that Paul loves this church. In chapter 4, he's going to call this church his crown and joy. And it's because, as you see in verse 5, it's their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. Philippi is only 100 miles away from Rome. It's a Roman colony. It's a main city in Macedonia, and it's like, basically a miniature Rome in and of itself. And when the church of Philippi hears that Paul's a prisoner, they immediately send help. In Acts 28, we read that while Paul is a prisoner of Rome, he's not in a Roman prison. Things would have been much worse if he was in a Roman prison. You know, there would have been abuse going on. It would have been dark. It would have been painful. It would have been disease-ridden. But instead, 
because Paul can pay his own way and his own expenses, he's allowed to be under house arrest. He's still always chained to a Roman soldier, but he's allowed to have guests come and go as they please. He can write his letters and send forth notes. He can share the gospel with anyone who's around him. And so Paul's situation is quite a bit better. We learn at the end of this letter that Paul can do this because, as he says in 4.18, I have received the full gift and more that you have sent, and I am well supplied. This church is caring for the needs that Paul has. And this isn't the first time. Over and over and over again, for the last 13 years, from when this church had been planted until now, they had supported Paul in ways that they could. And so Paul is deeply grateful to them. I can relate exactly to what Paul is saying here. Because 10 years ago, in 2013, Courtney and I first moved to Dallas. We didn't know anyone here. We didn't have a church here. We were coming to be in seminary. And you, this church, from the moment we stepped in, have supported us, loved us, cared for us. You've seen me through seminary, through a pastoral internship. You've allowed me to be one of your pastors. You've endured young pastor preaching from me. I'm still a young pastor, so hang in there. But I'm grateful because of how gracious and kind and caring you have been to me. But it's not just that. This church wouldn't exist apart from you. You have loved this church well by the ways in which you've given your time, how you've volunteered, how you've cared for the people here, how you've loved one another, how you've given graciously so that we can continue to do the gospel ministry that we get to do. So I can fully relate to Paul. We are grateful for you. Not every minister can say that about their church, but we can. And so with Paul in verses 9 through 11, I pray for you the same thing. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. I pray that for our church. Now let's move into the some of the more intriguing parts of our passage this morning. Paul's going to now shift to two things in the next six verses that I really kind of want to focus in on. And the first is seen here in verses 12 through 14. Paul is giving the church at Philippi an update on his condition, but not only an update, he also wants them to be encouraged in the face of their own difficult circumstances. So look at verses 12 and 13 and 14 here. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul is saying that 
you know, in the midst of these difficult trials that I am facing, God, with his providence, is putting them to use for his good, for his glory, but also for my good. And so the gospel is advancing. You know, we often talk about and preach on and discuss and look at the providence of God being worked out in our lives here at this church. You've heard us reference it in confessions of faith and Bible studies and sermons. But I hope that you realize that it's really true. And Paul's circumstances are a testament to that very thing. Do not forget the providence of God is at work in your life. It's Romans 8:28. God works all things to get all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. It's the same thing with the story of Joseph in Egypt. His brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up working his way up to the ladder and he becomes the second in command of Egypt. Terrible famine hits. And what happens? His brothers come. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Come and eat on the fat of the land in Egypt. He works out our situations for his good, or for our good and for his glory. I mean, remember what we just learned a couple of weeks ago in Colossians. Even though we face struggles, we are learning from one degree or another that we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Life is full of difficulties. It is full of suffering and struggle. But God uses it. It's, Paul isn't just some eternal optimist. It's true. He uses it. And so we should be encouraged in the face of our suffering. If nothing else, remember this. Our experiences in life are not wasted. They are used for our good and for our sanctification. And that's how Paul's able to find joy and contentment in his own circumstances. But now let's press on. The second point I want to look at is found in verses 15 through 17. And on the surface, this seems very confusing. Paul writes, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, so there's two sets of people preaching the gospel. One set makes total sense. These guys who are preaching out of love and goodwill, they're proclaiming Christ, we're good with them. But what about these other guys, the ones who are preaching from envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, seeking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment? You know, some of the scholars, like when you read through commentaries, they try to come up with ways for justifying who these guys are. Some of them want to say that maybe these were Paul's enemies, the Judaizers. You know, they were preaching a different gospel, and so it would make sense that they want to hurt Paul further and more. They want to take followers away from Paul. But I don't think that's who he's talking about. It's like in, in our context today, 
You know, you've got the televangelists, the health, wealth, and prosperity guys. They aren't preaching a true gospel. They're preaching from selfish ambition, and they're gaining a following. They're lining their pockets with money. That's not who Paul is talking about here. In verse 14, he calls them brothers. In verse 15, he says that they indeed preach Christ. So let me be absolutely clear. Paul is talking about real, genuine Christian ministers who are preaching the true gospel of Christ. But if these are part of their motives, then my question would be, why preach at all? In the first century, to be a Christian was basically to be on the lowest rung of the ladder. Like in the social strata of Rome, you were at the very bottom. As Larry Hurtado, a New Testament scholar, explains, he says Romans were, or Christians were viewed in Rome as odd, bizarre, and dangerous. He says that Christians refused to worship other deities and they sought to lead others to do the same thing. And as a result of their refusal to worship the pagan deities of Rome, Christians experienced popular abuse, intellectual condemnation, persecution on a local level, and eventually even on the statewide level. Paul being in prison for the sake of Christ is evidence of the persecution that Christians would be facing at this time. They were despised. They were rejected. You know, in two years' time from when this letter is written, a terrible fire in AD 64 breaks out in the heart of Rome. Who is it that Nero chooses to blame? It's the Christians. They are the easy target because nobody likes them. And when Nero blames the Christians, persecution, according to Tacitus, looks like this. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with skins of beasts. They were torn to pieces by dogs. They perished. Some were nailed to crosses, or others were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So being a Christian minister in the days of Paul would have been an occupational hazard. So if your motives are envy, your motives are rivalry, selfish ambition, you're seeking to afflict someone else, what is there to gain for you? This is what I think we're learning. These were real Christians. These were genuine ministers of the gospel. And so it is possible to preach the true gospel of Jesus while still having mixed sinful motives. I believe that they truly wanted people to trust in Christ and they were, in fact, willing to suffer for him. But at the same time, within the context of the church, within the social strata of the church, they desired to have their own egos inflated. Pride is the root sin that's at play here. You know, they were envious of Paul. Maybe they're envious of the fact that Paul is, you know, a wonderful preacher, 
that there are so many people coming to see him and learn from him. He is one of the apostles. Maybe they're jealous of the fact that he has that kind of authority, that kind of power behind him. They're jealous of Paul for whatever reason. They're also viewing Paul as a rival, meaning that they view it as a competition with him. Because Paul is in chains, they maybe see an opportunity to get a leg up on him, to advance further than he has gone. I mean, these little home churches in Rome would not have been large. But it seems like what they are desiring is to draw more people to themselves. And it's who's got the biggest and best church? Who's got the biggest and best ministry? And then, of course, their selfish ambition. While it's not in vogue to be a Christian, they were seeking notoriety and fame to some degree. They wanted their egos stroked. But perhaps the saddest part of all of this is that they were seeking or thinking that they might be able to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. As one person I read kind of translated this, they said it's as if they wanted to take Paul's chains and rub them into his already chafed wrists. I don't, you know, I don't know exactly what this means, but it's not hard to imagine some things, like their desire to see Paul's ministry diminish and his influence dwindle, and that in doing so, maybe Paul will feel pained and isolated. Maybe Paul, hearing that they are going out and preaching wherever they desire in the city of Rome, would remind him of the fact that he can't go anywhere, that he's always constantly chained to Roman soldiers. Maybe they thought that less people would visit him and Paul would just grow discouraged and lonely. And if you think about this from Paul's angle, how difficult and hard this must have been. These are supposed to be brothers in Christ, fellow ministers and church leaders. These are the last people who should be doing something like this to Paul. And so it would hurt. It would feel like betrayal. It might cause you to question and doubt why you were in prison to begin with. It might evoke anger and a desire for vengeance or justice. Sadly, and I think that this is deeply convicting, this is all too true in the church today. Do not think for a minute that ministers don't struggle with these kinds of sinful motives all the time. That church staffs and church leaders don't struggle with these sorts of things all the time. I know it is sick and it is dark and it is vile, but it is true. It is so easy for us to look at another minister or another church and become envious of the kind of budget they operate with, the kind of facilities they have, how good of a preacher someone may be, how large someone's Bible study or Sunday school might look. It's easy to view ourselves in rivalry with other gospel-believing, Christ-professing, Jesus-loving churches and think, where do we stand on the ladder? Are we better than them? Are we behind them? How do we get ahead of them? It certainly is easy to preach 
and teach with selfish ambition, wanting to have your ego and pride stroked, wanting people to like you because of the things you say or the way that you act. These things are real. But going a little bit further than where Paul goes, I think it's safe to apply to each of us individually as well. The reality is in the Christian life, anything can devolve into these sorts of sins and we can be eaten up by them. When it comes to looking at brothers and sisters in Christ, how easy is it for each of us to be envious, jealous, competitive with one another, wanting to be looked at in a certain way, looking at others as if they're less than us? I mean, I think of the... I think of that parable that Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee when they go in to pray and the Pharisee goes in and says, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that tax collector and sinner over there. We do that same thing all the time. Are there, are there times where we might find delight when a brother or sister is struggling because it might mean something good for us, whether in this church or just at another church? When you know the sinfulness of man's heart, it's not hard to believe that that can be true. We see it too often. Pride is the root. It is always there, and we need to root it out. Well, how does Paul conclude? You would think that Paul might get quite upset. Look at verse 18. That's not what Paul does. He says, so what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so we should have the same attitude as Paul. Not worrying about their motives, but thinking about our own, we should rejoice at seeing the church of Christ grow and thrive. That should be our greatest delight. We should love seeing Christ proclaimed and put forward. That's Paul's chief concern, that the gospel of Jesus Christ advances. It's not about him. It's not about his ministry. It's not about his influence or his church. He has no ego. It's all about Jesus. Our greatest joy should be in seeing his name and his glory and his fame put forth in all the earth. This is the principle that the Bible teaches over and over again. That the last will be first, that the humble will be exalted, that the least will be greatest, that the low will be raised up, and that the weak will be made strong. Paul follows the example of John the Baptist. Do you remember when John the Baptist, when he is ministering, there's all these droves of people who are coming to be baptized by him? And then when Jesus comes on the scene, all those people start to follow Jesus. John's closest disciples, they come to him and they say, what are we going to do? Everyone's leaving. John doesn't say, we got to figure something out to get them back. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. So it's a call to die to self and live for Christ. And when we die to self and live for Christ, it is a blessing knowing that our life is not our own, but that we've been bought with his blood. And so whether we are rich or poor, 
whether we are sick or healthy, loved or despised, happy or downtrodden, whether our church is large or small, whether our influence is broad or narrow, all of it, our circumstances in this life are opportunities for the glory of God to be put on display, and it's all being orchestrated by his providential hand. He will use us how he wants to, and it will be for his glory. So I'll end with this. It says a lot about us when we rejoice and love that other gospel-believing, Christ-loving churches and other brothers and sisters in Christ are doing well. It says so much about us. It says that we are growing in our likeness of Jesus, and it is the picture of Christian maturity to be delighted rather than to be proud, to see Christ first and not ourselves first. This is my prayer for our church, that we as believers would reflect the same attitude that Paul does. I pray that we would be like Paul, that we would rejoice wherever we see Jesus being held up and seeing his gospel advancing around the world, whether it's through our church or through another. I pray that we would rejoice in seeing brothers and sisters grow in the likeness of him and that we would praise God at seeing the ways in which he is blessing those around us and using those around us. That we would have this same view of the church that Paul does, not focused inward on ourselves, not on our own churches or our own ministries, but on understanding that we are one church belonging to Jesus Christ. May his gospel advance in every area of our life, and may we find great joy in that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for the ministry of Paul, for this letter to the Philippians, for the way that that church loved him so well. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from the sins that are present in this text. Protect us from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, but make us more like Christ, that he might be seen all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.